Well, we are in the book of Esther, and so if you want to turn there to Esther chapter 4, and as you are turning there, I want, I want to tell you a story. In the late 18th century, there was a humble English shoemaker and a Baptist minister named William Carey. Now, Carey had a deep burden for the unreached people groups in foreign lands. He passionately believed that the gospel needed to be taken to places where Christ had not yet been proclaimed. And he began to become a vocal advocate for sending missionaries to the nations. However, as the story goes, he faced a lot of opposition and reluctance from, surprisingly enough, those within his own Baptist network. Carey began to share his burdens and and the vision uh, for missions with other ministers and church leaders, and there was a famous meeting in 1792 in which he made a proposal to send missionaries to India, and he made this proposal to the Baptist Missionary Society. And in response to his proposal, one elder reportedly told him, young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid and mine. Now, this, of course, was a great discouragement to carry. I anticipate he was discouraged by both the reckless handling and and application of God's word and also his own heightened burden for seeing Christ proclaimed to the nations. Now, despite his discouragement, he remained steadfast in his conviction, but his approach very much changed. Rather than trying to find somebody else to go, rather than trying to gather support to send missionaries, he became one himself. The very next year after that meeting, he and his family left for India. And his missionary work, work, which spanned over 40 years, was instrumental in translating the Bible into multiple Indian languages, into establishing churches, and into laying the foundation for modern Christian missions as we know it today. Carrie's story is a powerful example of someone who felt a calling from God, but initially hoped somebody else would see it fulfilled. But he ultimately realized that God had chosen him to be the one to go to that place and fulfill the very burden that he carried. Today we're looking at a very similar story. The book of Esther is my favorite book in the Bible. Many people know this book as the only book in the Bible that does not mention or name God a single time. And yet, I would very much argue that God is the main character in this book. Though he is invisible, he is very much present and faithful to his people, even, as we'll see, they are far away from him. The reason I want us to consider Esther chapter 4 this morning is because it gives us an example of what it means to live for God with boldness. Bold faith, courageous faith is something that I believe is missing from many American churches. Faith to step out in obedience regardless of the cost. And I'll be the first to recognize that this is going to be hard. We live in a world that is hostile to God and to his people. Jesus, of course, told us that this would be the case. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Our world is hostile to both God and his people. And so how do we live with a bold faith in this world? That's the question I want for us to consider today. 
Now today we are looking at Esther chapter 4. We're basically in the middle of the narrative, and I can't spend much time talking about everything that came in the first three chapters. On Monday, I jokingly asked Athan how many chapters of this book I could preach, and he begged me to stay focused on chapter 4 because the Chiefs game's at 720, and we at least want to make it home for that. So you can thank him later. We'll see. <laughs> Let's very quickly talk about what has happened in the first three chapters of this book. First, there are four main characters in Esther. We see King Ahasuerus. We see Haman, who is the second highest official in the empire and who is the villain of the story. We see Mordecai, who is the hero of the story and thus the enemy of Haman. And we have Esther, the heroine of the story, who becomes queen by winning a beauty contest and by concealing her true identity as a Jew. In the first scene of this book, God sets the stage of the narrative, allowing Esther to replace Vashti as queen. In chapter 1, the king was throwing a great feast, and he asked Queen Vashti to show her beauty to the king's audience. And the implication of the text was that the queen was supposed to show her beauty wearing only her crown. Well, Vashti refused to participate in this, and the king became very angry, and so he decided to seek out a new queen. And that is where the hero Mordecai and heroine Esther enter the narrative. And in a point of irony, an orphaned and seemingly insignificant Jewish girl named Esther, who is being raised by Mordecai, becomes queen of Persia. In scene two of the book, Mordecai hears of a plot in which two of the king's officials plan to kill King Ahasuerus. Mordecai tells Queen Esther, who tells the king of the assassination plot, and effectively saves the king's life. Shortly thereafter, Haman is promoted, and through a series of events that we just don't have time to review this morning, Haman sought to exterminate the entire Jewish population, and he offered the king a substantial bride of 10,000 talents of silver in exchange for an irrevocable decree that would guarantee the Jews' destruction. Now remember, Esther is a Jew living in the king's palace, and the king is not aware of her true identity, of her Jewish identity. And this is where we now find ourselves in Esther chapter 4. So let's read the first three verses. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city and wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. In each and every province where the command and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. This morning we are asking the question, how do we live with a bold faith in this world? And the first thing I want you to see this morning is this, we lament the brokenness of this world. The edict that all the Jews were to be killed is now public knowledge. And Mordecai tears his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. This was an outward demonstration of what he was feeling inside of him, which was deep despair and anguish. And in verse 3, we see that the rest of the Jewish people were following his example. They were publicly mourning with fasting and weeping and wailing. It's an appropriate response to 
hearing a decree that your people are going to be killed. And Mordecai, he goes as far as he could. He goes to the king's gate. That was as far as he could go in sackcloth. Now, we don't explicitly know why. We don't have some law that prohibits sackcloth inside the king's gate. Can you, Phil, can you turn me down? I'm getting a lot of feedback. We don't have some law that bans sackcloth inside the king's gate, but we do know of this time period that this behavior would have been consistent with preserving the dignity of the king's residence. The king was to be hidden from any suffering that might be taking place in the kingdom around him. And we see a glimpse of this, I think, in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah tells a story where he goes to the king and he was sad and he tells it tells us that he had never been in the presence of the king in this sad, desperate state. And the king recognized and acknowledged Nehemiah's sadness, and it says that Nehemiah was overwhelmed with fear. And so we have this glimpse into this world where Mordecai had two options. He could put on a mask, he could change his clothes and enter the king's gate and pretend like everything is okay, or he could publicly mourn outside of the king's gate in sackcloth. I think there's an interesting parallel we can make here as we consider how the church today is to live bold. Do we as the church expect people to put on a mask to pretend like everything is okay before they come into this place? Or do we want them to come as they are, with all of their grief, with all of their sorrow, with all of their burdens, and all of their sins? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12 to weep with those who weep. And in Galatians chapter 6 to bear one another's burdens. And in 1 Corinthians that if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Now, I do believe West Haven is this church. I do believe that we invite others to enter into this place just as they are, but I think this practice must be always evaluated and tested and cultivated. Are we this church? And not only that, but are you that person, right? Are you that person who will come just as you are, or do you put on a mask? I personally think that is the bigger problem. We can be a church who invites others to come as they are, while at the same time be unwilling to come as we are ourselves. And I think that there is an easy question we can ask ourselves, an evaluation of that. Does anybody in your life know who you are? Meaning, do they know the temptations you face? Do they know your sorrows? Do they know what causes your heart to rejoice? Does anybody know you? Think about this. When we put on a mask and pretend like everything is okay, we prohibit other people from following the commands of Scripture. We prevent others from weeping with us. We prevent others from bearing our burdens. We, when we put on a mask and come into this place, we prevent others from ministering to our soul. And Mordecai would not put on a mask. He was lamenting the brokenness of this world. There should be more grieving over sin. There should be more grieving over wickedness. Lamenting over the brokenness of this world should be a natural part of living in a broken world because we know that this world is not as it should be. And God is big enough to hear our cries. The psalmist 
in Psalm 116, he's, he's in this state of just complete desperation. And he says, I love the Lord because he hears my voice. We should cry out to the Lord more, lamenting the sin and brokenness that surrounds us that's within us. We should grieve more, not less. And as we'll see, our lamenting the brokenness of the world will be a catalyst for us living boldly for the Lord. That is the first way we live with a bold faith in this world. The second way is this. We remember our true identity. We remember our true identity. Mordecai is lamenting the evil that has fallen upon his people. He is outside of the king's gate. And then we read this starting in verse 4. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish, and she sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak from the king's eunuchs, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what it was and why it was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show Esther and inform her and to order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. So Esther's in the palace. And because the palace was sheltered from any type of suffering, she had no clue what was going on. Everybody in the kingdom knew what was going on except for Esther. Just consider these events as they unfold. We see her maidens and her eunuchs come and tell Esther about the state of Mordecai. And Esther's first response was, let's send him some clothes so that he can come in and we can talk about what is bothering him. She did not yet recognize the seriousness of the situation, indeed of her own situation being a Jew. And Mordecai turned down the clothes, and I think he did so to communicate a message that he couldn't communicate with just words. He's in essence saying, Esther, our problem, your problem is, better, is bigger than you recognize. You should be far less concerned about talking to me as you should be the king. And so she sends Hathak to ask questions of Mordecai. And Mordecai had lots of information to give Hathak, right? He had information about the bribe. He had information about the forthcoming destruction of the Jews. He even had a copy of the edict that had been issued. And so he gives all of this information to Hathak so that, verse 8 again, he might show Esther and inform her that she would go to the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for her people. That's a very important phrase and a turn of events in this book. For her people. Up to this point, Esther had been concealing her identity as a Jew. Mordecai was even the one who had, who had instructed Esther to not reveal her identity. But now he's essentially saying, Esther, the jig is up. It's, it's time to come clean. It's time to reveal who you are. Now consider Esther's station in life. She was the queen of Persia. She undoubtedly had every luxury that befits a queen. She had the best clothes. She had the best food. She had the most valuable possessions. And she was so disconnected from her people 
that she had no idea what was going on in the kingdom around her. She had done a very good job at concealing her true identity. Commentator wrote, when we compromise with the world, we easily find ourselves becoming isolated and distant from God's people and out of touch with God's concerns in the world. That was Esther. And it can very easily become us. Throughout Jesus' ministry on earth, he frequently pointed people to the eternal, to eternal rewards. And he did so because he knew that we are far too preoccupied with the things of this world. And folks, we are too preoccupied with the things of this world that offer no eternal value. And so what is the antidote? We remember our true identity that we are a child of God. And if you are indeed a true child of God, he will not allow you to conceal your identity as a child of God for long. Like Esther, we will be put in circumstances where we must decide, am I going to rebel against God and flee from his people, or am I going to go all in and boldly live for Christ? I'm reminded of a children's song, right? Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. Are you the same person here that you are at your job? Students, are you the same person here that you are in the halls and classrooms of the high school and the middle school and the elementary school? Are you hiding your faith? Are you living as an undercover Christian? If that is you, remember who you are. You are a child of the one true king. You have been adopted into his family to obtain, Peter says, an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and it will not fade away and you have been redeemed by the blood of the Son. Your sins have been forgiven. Christ's righteousness is yours. You have been given a new life and a new power by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so stop hiding, Christian. If God is for you and he is for you, then who can be against you? So how do we live with a bold faith in this world? One, we lament the brokenness of this world. Two, we remember our true identities. Third, we fight the temptations of the flesh. We fight the temptations of the flesh. Look now at Esther chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. Hathak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law that he be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for these 30 days. They related Esther's words to Mordecai. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. It's in this point of the story that we start to slow down a bit 
to consider exactly what is at stake. Mordecai wants Esther to go to the king and plead on behalf of her people, but there is a big problem. In order to enter the king's presence, one must first be summoned by the king. And if anybody entered who was not first summoned, they were, be, they were to be put to death immediately unless the king extended his golden scepter, thereby preserving the life. In addition, Esther tells Mordecai that she hasn't seen the king in 30 days. Now, knowing the character of this king, it's highly unlikely that the king was sleeping by himself at night. Esther, I believe, is telling Mordecai that what you are asking me to do is my death sentence. Surely, Mordecai, there must be another way. But Mordecai doubles down. Mordecai is, is powerless in this situation, right? The Jewish people are powerless in this situation. And he tells Esther, Esther, you are uniquely positioned to do something. But he gives Esther a warning, right? Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. Esther, Mordecai says, you shouldn't be so comfortable in your palace. You are a Jew. Your fate in many ways is interwoven with ours. If all of the Jews are to die, you will die too. Your identity will be revealed. And then after giving this warning to Esther... He gives her another warning, but this other warning is, is, is a bit different because this other warning is filled with ultimately hope for the Jews. He says, if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Mordecai essentially tells Esther, to remember the promises of our God. Throughout all of Scripture, God has promised to preserve a remnant. Mordecai does not know what will happen if Esther fails to act, but he trusts that God will not annihilate the Jews because he has promised to preserve a remnant. And he tells Esther, you shouldn't fear the king, you should fear the king of kings disobedience, Esther, disobedience to God brings much more danger than obedience to God ever will. And Esther, could it be that God has put you in your position for such a time as this? Every part of Esther's flesh was telling her that if she stepped out into obedience, she would die. And Mordecai throughout this chapter is, is trying to show Esther, exactly what is going on around her. Esther, look at the world, look at your kingdom and lament what is happening to your people. Does that break your heart? And remember who you are. You are one of us. Maybe, Esther, just maybe, God has placed you where you are at, in your status, in the palace, for a reason. Maybe, Esther, God has chosen you, an imperfect person, to fulfill his perfect plan. Church, do you know that you were placed here for a reason? You were placed here in this church, in this community, in your job, in your school, in your hobbies, for such a time as this. For this world that we live in, this world that is hostile to God and to his people, you were placed here. 
And everything that has taken place into your, in your life has prepared you for the moment you are at right now. And these moments are preparing you for everything you will experience in the days ahead. God is working out his perfect plan through imperfect people. You are not here by accident. You are here for a purpose. And listen, it's not the kings of this world that we need to worry about. It's the king of kings. Disobedience to God brings much more danger than obedience ever will. And it's for that reason that we must be bold in our faith. Listen, the Bible never promises us that we will be safe. The, pro the Bible promises that we will be saved. In fact, it promises you will suffer. But it promises that God will be with us in the midst of our suffering. Our experience in this fallen world will involve attacks. We will be attacked verbally. We may be attacked physically. We may be fired from our job because we refuse to bow the knee to the latest corporate mandate designed to appease the culture war against Christians. We might lose friends. We might lose status. We might even be burned at the stake. This world is not a safe home. For Christian, that's the point. This world is not our home. We must fight against the flesh, which tells us that self-preservation is all that matters. It's not. That's a lie from the devil. Don't look at the circumstances you are in. But rather, look at the character of God. See his character. See that he is good. See that he is powerful. See how he has cared and provided for his children. Sure, some of his children have been brutally mistreated. Some of them have been brutally martyred. But ultimately, God has saved every one of his children. Our flesh will always direct our gaze to the trial. But Christian, we must lift our gaze from the trial by the power of the Spirit and lift it and rest it in the Savior. We lament the brokenness of the world. We remember our true identity. We fight against the temptations of the flesh. And lastly, we obey God with boldness. Look at verse 15 now. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa, and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. The first thing these verses teach us is that while we are to obey God with boldness, we don't do it by ourselves. We obey God with the strength of others surrounding us, with the strength of others Esther instructs Mordecai to have all the Jews fast, to not eat or drink for three days, and Esther and her maidens will be doing the same, and then, only then, will she go to the king. Esther is trusting in her people to intercede for her. She's looking to them for spiritual support. Church, there is great strength in the family of God. In the family, we saw that, we sang that song, Oh, how good it is this morning. In the family of God, the weak find strength, the afflicted find grace. Because we offer and share and live in the love of the Father with the Son 
in the Spirit. There is great strength. There is divine strength in the family of God. Matthew 18, 20 says, Where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. This is why I love our Sunday morning worship gatherings so much. Our worship gatherings on Sunday mornings prepare us for the war that begins every Monday morning, if not sooner. And I know that sometimes the Lord providentially hinders or prevents us from being here. And I also know that there are seasons in the church that are just more transient than others. For example, in the summer, we know that there's going to be a few families gone every week because they're simply traveling for vacation. And of course, there's other circumstances of that type of nature. But I also know that those circumstances are exceptions and not the rule. Most of the time, when people miss worship gatherings, it's based on intentional choices and decisions that they have made which prevent them from attending. Folks, Scripture doesn't give attending corporate worship. It's not optional in Scripture. Hebrews 10.25 says, Do not forsake our assembling together. That's the command of Scripture. God knows that in order to live with a bold faith, we need the strength of others that comes in our gathering together. So if you regularly miss the gathering of the saints, you are damaging your soul. And quite frankly, you need to repent. Gathering together with the saints is a command. Therefore, failing to gather with the saints is sin. And again, I'm not talking about those times when you are providentially hindered from being here or even those circumstances that occasionally prevent you from being here. But if you find yourself frequently or regularly not gathering with the saints, that's sin. And if that's you, if that's your family, I urge you to repent. You need to be here. You need the strength of others. And we need you to be here. We need the strength that you can provide us, every single one of you. So we obey God with the strength with others, but we also obey God in the strength of God, in the strength of God. The author of this book uses a number of literary devices to communicate his message. He goes to great lengths to not name God, and yet God is clearly at work throughout this entire narrative. His invisible hand is guiding and directing the lives of his people. He's putting them in places and positions to fulfill his perfect plan. In a similar way, the author uses a, 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 a literary something here to convey a message. Prayer is strangely missing from this section. Prayer seems to be an implication of it. I'm very confident it was. But it's still strange that fasting was mentioned, but prayer was not. And I believe that the author was trying to show us just how far away the people had grown from God. And yet, God was still with them. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, we always see fasting accompanied by prayer. Fasting is one way that God exhorts his people to deny their own flesh and focus on their relationship with God. And so what I believe we are seeing here is a corporate confession and repenting of sin, a returning to Yahweh. The people recognize that even if we are together, if God is not on our side, our efforts will be worthless. A commentator wrote that Esther's fast makes sense only as a community appeal to God to do the miraculous and enable her to find favor with King Ahasuerus. 
Fasting in the Bible is a means of expressing sorrow over sin and dependence upon God. The people return to God and plead with him to be with Esther. And so, church, are you far from God? Return to him. When you come before God with a humble and a contrite heart, repenting of your sins, acknowledging your complete and total dependence on him, you do not need to fear The prophet Micah wrote, Who is a God like you, who forgives iniquity and passes over the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold fast to his anger forever because he delights in loving kindness. He will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities and you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. We obey God with boldness, with the strength of others, in the strength of God, and lastly, regardless of the cost. After their fasting, Esther says, I will go into the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. We don't see this so much in our English translations, but the construction of the sentence in the original language makes it clear that Esther does not believe that death is merely a possible outcome. She believes it is the most probable outcome. But she went anyways. And if you're familiar with the story, you know that God had indeed placed Esther in her position for such a time as this. The queen revealed her Jewish heritage and Haman's plot to annihilate the Jews. And through an ironic turn of events, the king ordered Haman to be hung. He helped the Jewish people defeat their enemies, and he promoted Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now, there are a lot of flawed individuals in this book. Esther is a flawed person. Mordecai is a flawed person. Haman's a flawed person person. King Ahasuerus is a flawed person. There are a lot of flawed people in this room, but God uses imperfect people in his perfect plan. God is choosing to save his people through the ordinary means of using you and me to proclaim the gospel and call others to repent and believe. Like Esther, we too face significant choices in our lives. Our power and influence may not match Esther's, but we must recognize that God has purposely positioned us for such a time as this. Where you are presently at, your current circumstances, it's not a coincidence. God has deliberately placed us in our specific moment in time, in our specific roles, and in our locations, and he extends an invitation for us to confidently engage in his work regardless of the challenge that he sets before us, we can trust that God will empower us to act in such a time as this. Church, we are empowered to and we must have a bold faith. But perhaps you are sitting here and you're asking yourself the question, how can I have bold faith when I'm not sure I have any faith? In other words, I don't think I am saved. Well, the main point of Esther chapter 4 is not to live with bold faith. I know that's been my message today, but if our main takeaway from today is that you need courage and boldness, we have completely missed the point of Esther. The main point of Esther is that we all need a redeemer. 
or perhaps more specifically, we need a mediator. Mordecai went to Esther because she had access to the king. Church, we go to Jesus, the true and better Esther. And he doesn't merely have access to a king, he has access to the king of kings. And this great king is far greater in every respect than King Ahasuerus. This king is infinitely wise and kind. He's also holy, and sinful people cannot enter his presence. This king has even issued a decree. Ezekiel 18.4 says that the soul whose sins shall die. We need a mediator, and Jesus is our mediator. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus lived a perfect life. He lived the life we were meant to live, and he died the death we are supposed to die. But consider this, for Esther, death was the most probable outcome. For Jesus, it was an absolute certainty. Sin demands death, and God sent his own son to die in your place. And so what are we called to do? We are called to repent of our sins. That means to turn away from it and believe in Jesus. Repent and believe that God is calling you. It's through the work of Jesus that we may receive life, eternal life. So if you've done that, if you've repented of your sins and believed upon the Lord Jesus for the first time today, would you let somebody know? I'd, I'd love to talk to you. I'd love to answer any questions you may have, so please come talk to me. You can also fill out that Connect card or scan the QR code and fill out the card that way, and we'll reach out to you later this week. But church, we do not know what trials tomorrow will bring. But this world is not our home. There will come a day when the trials will end, when the suffering will be a distant memory, when sin and sorrow will be no more. And on that day, we will no longer fast, but we will feast in the glory of God and in the presence of our Savior. And so live boldly in light of that day. Let's pray.